I think we're going to get nuclear fusion to work in the next few years. What the fuck are you talking about? So what the fuck are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? And importantly, not just as a scientific demonstration, but as incredibly cheap energy and at global scale. What the fuck are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about, man? What the fuck is he talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? So I think other than AI, if you could do one thing that would like really help the world get richer, increase the quality of life, it's very cheap energy. What the fuck are you talking about? 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 What the fuck are you talking Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 315 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. We are very excited and happy to be joined by Mel Gregg, who is uh, a industry consultant for sustainability, worked at Intel for a very long time, um, and is also uh, has an appointment with RMIT in Melbourne. Um, but Mel is one of those rare social scientists, one of those anthropologists who worked deep in the tech sector for for a very long time um, on the inside, really trying to um, push for a lot of the the kind of change, meaningful change around thinking about people and human relations and the, you know, and increasingly um, recently, you know, sustainability, environmental concerns. And so, you have a, a, a wellspring of, of deep insider knowledge, but from that real social science perspective, which I think is rare, um, but, but also really like desperately needed. And so I'm, I'm very excited to have you on, Mel, um, to talk uh, specifically around like how the tech sector is thinking about sustainability initiatives, how it's thinking about net zero, how it's thinking about lowering carbon emissions, green software, all of this kind of stuff. You just had a, a really great piece come out um, in the journal Energy Research and Social Science with um, a colleague of mine, Yolandi Stringers at Monash, um, really looking at these kind of net zero dashboards um, that are across the, the IT sector. Um, so lots for us to dig into there. But first of all, Thank you for coming on, Mel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really pleased to be part of the cross-continental conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, right, yeah. the, the trans-Pacific conversation that we're, that we're happening here. Um, <laughs> well, I think uh, a, a really great place for us to, to kick things off um, is there is some recent reporting in the New York Times and Bloomberg, um, based on a, uh, a a journal article in the journal Jewel, um, which is a, a kind of energy um, analysis or, um, journal that published this analysis, kind of forecasting um, some middle ground scenarios. So, like within the next five years or so, um, what kind of energy demands? 
AI servers are, are likely to be um, putting on the uh, electricity production and distribution. Um, and, and of course, you know, there, a lot of this research, which is very, um, for this article, which was which is very relevant for the the article that we just ran uh, or the episode that we just did on Nvidia was looking more at the kind of energy consumption of um, the Nvidia servers right as a kind of a proxy for understanding the energy consumption of training uh, and running AI models um, because of course a lot of this energy data um, as we'll get into is like very proprietary it's it's secretive um, we don't know we don't have really good reporting even around how much energy um, companies are using, let alone like the all of the different startups, small from small startups to large mega corporations. Like it's such a diffuse um, sector that we don't have really good metrics even of the energy consumption. But so this research was looking at the projected sales uh, of, of NVIDIA servers as a kind of proxy for energy consumption and was of course finding that energy consumption over the next five years or so is, is likely to jump massively um, so the 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 span that they're giving is by 2027 AI servers could use between 85 to 134 terawatt hours annually which is a similar consumption to Argentina the Netherlands and Sweden uh, and so looking at like country sized or multiple small country sized energy usage um, for 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 running and training AI models and so so uh, in response to this well-known need for the electricity consumption of AI, um, recently at Davos, Sam Altman said that uh, the solution to this, such that we don't slow down the AI revolution and thus you know, slow down the train of, of progress that we're all chugging along on, the solution to this is nuclear fusion. Uh, there's, he's saying there's... To, as Altman was um, quoted saying, there's no way to get there without a breakthrough. It motivates us to go invest more in fusion. Um, and so I think this is a really great place to start thinking about the IT sector's energy consumption, but also their kind of the way that they think about sustainability uh, is, is these two kind of nicely juxtaposed articles about forecasting AI's usage and then perhaps the the leading uh, spokesperson for AI in the world today, Sam Altman <laughs> saying, the solution is nuclear fusion, a technology that does not exist and has no real likelihood of existing anytime in the, in the near future. Yeah, I mean, the, the number of ways to... Um talk about the future and projection is really what you're hitting on there. And who's ever going to say that they're going to sell less of something if, if part of their job is to be uh, forecasting the future? One of the things that you notice when you work in tech is the way that the future is imagined in terms of sales and how those sales are projected based on a baseline of today or yesterday. Um, and without a lot of relationship to um, who's asking for the products and who a new kind of user base might be in a different future. Um, that's, that's a really interesting way of talking in, in part about what's inaccurate about 
using sales as a way to imagine <laughs> what what you should be planning for because um, sales is always going to be an optimistic language and discourse. But I think you're also onto something when you put the focus on what is the different kind of energy that's going to maintain access to supply. It takes away any need to scrutinise the conversations around who's creating demand and it's not really the user that's creating demand, it's the tech company that's telling the user that AI is the future. And I feel like one of the things that we don't get enough of a chance to do right now is talk back <laughs> to the evangelists who are saying that AI is coming or is already here or the game's already decided because we've released something. It's like, actually, <laughs> we still have a lot that we need to discuss in terms of whether this is realistic, whether this is um, helpful, <laughs> whether it's responsible. And so sustainability often is a word that people use to get away from some of those difficult conversations, right? And sustainability in the tech sector usually means keeping things as they are. And what we have right now is a very small number of companies that are determining the language, the tools, the metrics, and almost, it seems, the standards for what counts as sustainability. And, and that's really what I'm starting to question <laughs> much more publicly now with some of this writing. Yeah, I, I think you really hit on there, like sustain what does sustainability mean? It means, you know, keeping things the way that they are. But, but also, I think, importantly, not in some, like, static freezing the current status quo, but more like keeping the trajectory the way it mm -hmm. is as well, which is this idea that it's like, it's always up and to the right. You know, it's always more, more servers, more models, more usage, um, you know, more, more, more. And so like that, the sustainability is, is always about keeping things the way that they are, which means keeping the the current trajectory and the current kind of choices that have been made around what technology, how to design technologies, how they, they should be used and marketed. And so like keeping all those decisions exactly the same too. And then thinking about like, pointing to, you know, some imagined breakthrough of nuclear fusion. I mean, it's classic, just like, you know, technological solutionism, of course, which is like, let's, let's pray for a magic genie to give us the solution such that we never actually have to question uh, any of those, uh, uh, any of those assumptions or embedded trajectories. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder like what happens when that magic genie never comes, <laughs> you know, when, when you, you keep the, when you do sustainability in the sense of keeping everything going in the same exact direction it already is um but then like do you, you know has that has has the tech sector been doing any real reckoning with like material limits of growth for example <laughs> well i mean I, it, when you're speaking about it it makes me think of that cartoon you know that recurring motif in cartoons when I was a kid where somebody's being chased over a cliff and they don't realize <laughs> until it's too late that they've already gone over the cliff and they're about to fall down. So that idea of the, the hockey stick of growth, which is what you were talking about before, right, where it's always going, like the, the business definition of success is this hockey stick of, of always going up. Um, it's something that's in, been inherited by a generation of business planners who are still in charge of a, a lot of these companies. And even if there are more 
um, progressive or ambitious or radical employees further down the line who are trying to think about um, computing within limits or a traditional engineer who's always trying to think about computing within a footprint because you have to fit a certain number of things within the SOC or, yeah, within the amount of space you're given on the hardware. Energy efficiency itself as a version of sustainability has always been part of the practice of engineering. Um, but I think part of what the challenge is right now is there's a lot of buzz about tech companies still being these icons of industry and, and what success looks like for business and for being an employee, right? To be working at one of these companies has had such cachet for a number of years now that um, there's a lot of pressure on these companies to be saying the right thing about sustainability, to make it an attractive place to work, but also there's a lot of... Um, newsworthiness to the sorts of goals that these companies set because if anyone can set these goals, we hope it's going to be these companies who can afford to do something about some of the big infrastructure questions that come with the shift to renewable energies, for example. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of work I've been doing the last few years is getting into the nitty-gritty of whose job does it become to sit in between like someone whose full-time role is to hype <laughs> like a Sam Altman to the person who's on stage at the business leaders conference where the net zero target is actually going to be scrutinized by the journalists. What engineering is going in to those claims that the companies are making, if any, <laughs> and then how do we actually get people in those companies to see that they would have a role in doing something differently in their day job um, so that there is more um, buy-in and more um, sense of urgency and purpose in the work that people are doing day to day. And if we want to call that sustainability, fine. <laughs> but I think it's also just about realising that all of us, no matter what kind of job we have, no matter where we work, are going to be affected by climate change. And if that doesn't change your job tomorrow, <laughs> um, you would really want to be working for a company where they have the smartest people working on what that company is going to be looking like in five years' time or in 10 years' time because all of the things they've taken for granted are going to be at risk in different ways because you just cannot see <laughs> how business will continue the same way given what we see in the science and what we see in the weather happening around us. <laughs> you talked also a little bit about, you know, uh, scrutiny and the and, and the role it might play in thinking about who's talking in front of who. Um, you know, whether it's like a, you know, charismatic figure or someone who can actually uh, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with journalists. I'm curious, you know, at what levels, what sorts of scrutiny happens? Because, you know, as you talk about within the piece and also as we've seen, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of tech companies especially seem to have the most success at local, regional levels where they're directly interfacing with governments to such a degree where, you know, sometimes I wonder if there's a momentum that builds up which can withstand scrutiny from journalism, even at the mm -hmm. national media level. Um, and then there's also instances where even, you know, internally, um, you know, or maybe, you know, whether it's forward facing to investors and internally facing their own teams, their scrutiny that might even exceed 
what they're subjected to externally, but uh, nonetheless, the the you know the ship seems to go on the same course. You know, are there are there the same number of you know interfe- you know uh, interfering factors or obstacles that are operating in each of these areas? Is is it you know a problem that comes down to like some of these things are just too large or too gargantuan or um, you know too uh, well entrenched really to um, listen to scrutiny or to even care about it? Or, I mean, you know, from your research, do you get a sense of other factors uh, being at play here? Oh, wow. There's so much I want to talk about from what you just <laughs> said, because, you know, when you, when you talk about the internal scrutiny, that's really fascinating, right? Because in some of the bigger companies and especially some of the older companies, one of the problems becomes, um, you know, the amount of accrued wins to certain um, parts of the company, who's who's the most, you know, successful business unit within the organisation and how does the competition within the company work against shared goals, you know, sustainability goals and not just the company-wide corporate level ones, but, you know, you would hope they're also planetary <laughs> in nature. So it really perverts these um, forms of internal competition that also work against business success in ossifying older company structures. Um, So people's relationship to the customer, for example, becomes really jealously guarded. So if somebody from the sustainability team were to speak in front of like a customer for a particular kind of product, they might put at risk, you know, the goodwill and the golfing buddy relationship that, you know, a certain sales lead has been curating for decades. So it's like all of that stuff that as an anthropologist, you know, and a sociologist, of work, I've often just found amazing <laughs> in terms of its influence on what can and can't get done in a company, even with the best intentions. But then the other thing, I mean, so I could talk a lot more about how board level scrutiny does change things dramatically. Um, but what I'm more interested in exploring, because I think it's more relevant beyond just the sector I'm in is what you were mentioning about um, local relationships that companies forge and thinking about how corporate governance works as well. It's not just sustainability that companies are measured on, but it's this whole ESG or environmental, social and governance structures, which um, a lot of the time from my observation um, is, is, is played up on those local community levels because it's something that's easier to do. You know, it's easier to give away um, used IT to a local nonprofit to empower homeless people who've never had access to a computer than it is to not dam a waterway in the first place and stop Indigenous rights to have access to that water that they've never actually been able to win back. Um, and they're the sorts of really tough compromises, tensions and, and politics that are at play all in that same banner under the ESG um, social governance logic in corporate America right now where um, all of these different special interest groups, so they're called, or underrepresented minorities as they're also called, like there's all these terrible acronyms (laughs) for how this stuff actually plays out. Um, And that's, that's the way that corporations put a friendly face on the fact that they're getting very good deals with local governments to open up whole new, you know, layers of land access and uh, community facilities and 
sweetheart deals on building roads and car parks and um, electricity supply in a way that's not accountable or available for communities to actually know about. Um, And so that's another thing that I'm interested in learning more about by comparing different places where, for example, the CHIPS Act is landing, um, which is a a very big piece of legislation that the Biden administration passed. Um, It's wonderful for the newspaper stories that you were just referring to as well, like the patriotic press bringing manufacturing back to the heartland for the United States, um, while also playing up this real fear about um, geopolitics and the concentration of, in in this case, in my, in my background, the silicon supply chain. Um, and so you're right, there are all of these different dynamics around um, scrutiny, around what a journalist is also incentivized to write about right now, depending on what outlet they work for. Um, and, you know, the dire state of mainstream politics <laughs> where um, any win uh, for a slightly progressive government seems like a miracle so you don't really want to be being a negative, uh, yeah, a negative voice in that scenario. You want to try and find a way <laughs> to look for the good. And, man, that's, that's hard. It's a hard balance. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. As well, when when especially it's like, and then when you start kind of getting beneath the hood around how things like ESG actually is calculated, how it works, um, what it actually means, or when you start, uh, you know, like you do in your piece, talking about these kind of corporate governance and managerial regimes around objectives and key results, that these these kind of things that are meant to like establish. Uh, you know, establish objectives. So the kind of goals or missions of the, that the company is working towards and then establish metrics and benchmarks and strategies for achieving them through these kind of key results. Like this is the way that, you know, normally um, these things like sustainability or things like, you know, social, uh, you know, so, social innovation or um, whatever it might be are, you know, these are ways that they're supposed to be measured, implemented uh, and kind of perpetuated. But then I, I always just think about this, um, this, um, this really amazing piece of investigative reporting in Bloomberg a few years ago that was all about what they called the ESG mirage. Um, and it was like really looking in depth at how uh, ESG uh, indexes are, are calculated and how um, certain these ratings are actually done for for companies and you know it was things like um, you know uh, having having like a mission statement uh, can can drastically increase your ESG score uh, <laughs> complying with regulations can drastically increase your ESG score uh, like these kind of like things that you and and what sustainability means as well and this is also something I I see constantly in in my um, main focus area around the insurance industry which is like using words that have, um, a kind of folk common understanding of like no, like people kind of assume they know what sustainability means or they know what fairness means um, or what public interest means. Um, but then, but then when you dig into how these words are actually used in the industry, they're very idiosyncratic and oftentimes um, complete 
uh, contradictory definitions from like the kind of common understanding of what that word means. And then the industry does really well to let you assume you know what they mean when they say sustainability, even though what they really mean is um, sustain maintaining sustainable profits in the face of a changing right. <laughs> world. You know, that's what sustainability for ESG means is, are you a sustainable business? In other words, will you continue to have growing profit margins and revenues despite challenges like uh, drought or famine or whatever it might be? Um, and it's like, hey, that's not what sustainability means and in, in like for normal people. Uh, and so I want like this... Uh, I wonder if you could dig deeper into, you know, you talk, you were talking about kind of corporate governance, talking about these, um, kind of the kind of managerial regimes that oversee what sustainability actually looks like in practice in, um, companies like Intel, but also just across the, the IT sector. You talk, can you, can you get a bit more into like, how like how these kind of OKR, these objective and key results, kind of dashboards and managerial regimes um, actually operate um, and why they have become so central to like what sustainability um, looks like in terms of because like, you know, if, if listeners don't realize like a lot like any any change that's going to happen at a, at a corporate level is probably going to have to happen you know if it ha unless it happens through some kind of big exogenous force of change um, you know regulation or breaking a company up or or having really strict uh, mandates that are actually enforced um, anything else that is like kind of a voluntary change or the change that's the result of like public pressure or social pressure is probably going to happen through some kind of corporate governance change right how are we what what objectives are we deciding to put on the board as ones we're going to work towards and what benchmarks are we going to use to measure our success or failure at achieving those objectives and you really kind of crack this open um, in the in the article that you wrote with Yolandi. And so could you could you dig into that more? Yeah, well, objectives and key results is a, a kind of management tool that if anyone in a workplace has worked on key performance indicators, for example, it's KPIs, that's, that's another version of this. They're management tools that are designed to create a form of um, roadmap to guide work for a certain period of time, usually the course of a year. And these are also objectives that employees are measured on for their performance. So um, one of the things that's interesting about the history of the OKR method is that um, a lot of it is attributed to one of the former leaders of Intel Corporation, Andy Grove, who was um, – fated for having made such an efficient operating machine out of the manufacturing um, processes at Intel and, and is, is a, a legend in management thought because of this. And objectives and key results are supposed to be a way of getting everybody on the same page for what the main priority is for the company that year. And so it's usually set at executive level, like the C-suite, the, the CEO and their team will have their own objectives and key results and they sort of have this um, waterfall effect of having everyone in the next layer down have their objectives and key results laddering up to the ones that the executives have set. So it has this 
conformist uh, effect in application because if you are further down the management chain, it's very hard to put something on the agenda to work on for the year if it doesn't in some way link back to these larger corporate objectives. So that's one way that in a, in a very simple sense um, I talk about in this paper that um, ambition for sustainability is already restricted by the way in which it's framed by the executives at the, at the start of the year. Um, what it also means is that if your employee performance review is linked to how well you do on the whittled down version of the OKR that you accept at your team's level, if you, if you fail on that, then it's, it's going to be something that's on your mind or year um, as something that you could be punished for in terms of the executive reward structure or the compensation package you're on and the bonus time <laughs> that all of these things are stitched into. So there are different ways in which the ambition for employees becomes restricted through these management tools to not be um, steering away from what's already a consensus view of what the priorities should be. Um, and the, the thing I guess that I noticed over the time that I was working in the tech sector is um, more and more companies started to use this exact same method. So even if OKRs may have been an effective way to run a manufacturing company, you know, where you're, you're shipping widgets to a schedule <laughs> and really your customer is expecting those widgets to ship on time and that's, that's your main job. Um, and if you screw that up, well, we know what happens and you've just done a whole episode on NVIDIA. <laughs> so um, people can refer to that for more details. But, you know, it's, it's about managing those um, potential schedule shifts, you know, and so the disciplinary technique of hitting something for X percent of accuracy by this date makes sense when you're talking about objects. But when you're talking about ideas, I mean, this relates to other research I've done on time management techniques over the last century in organisations. How do you put knowledge work in the same category? How do you put innovation and creativity in the same category as did I get this widget on the production line by the 1st of January? And I think what worries me is that the way that management techniques for manufacturing things has now become the way that we discipline workers to fall in line with what are essentially consensus views on what it means to keep a business going. Um, where's, where's the space for the kind of big picture creativity that we're going to need and the kinds of longer term strategic thinking we're going to need to move business into a more um, not just responsible and clean energy future, but I think, you know, a, a future that is a lot more unstable than, than current executives are prepared to admit. And so, you know, using a paradigm that's um, all about setting schedules to be predictable, it can't take into account what could be, you know, some quite chaotic times ahead for us from a climate perspective, um, but also, you know, looking around us politically from a social unrest perspective, um, especially as there's a lot more inequity in the way that everyday life is being experienced. The actual like practice of these OKRs too, I think you really, you, you, you do a lot in the piece to actually talk about like 
not just the the kind of the theory of the OKR, but also the what it means at the implementation stage as well. Around you, you call it you know uh, a time consuming distraction, right? Which um, you know, in a lot of ways, this kind of building these OKRs. You know that as you as you, I'll quote from your piece a little bit where you say all this discussion, or rather, in Melissa's larger team, an additional separate software package was introduced as an intermediate step for individuals to grade themselves on OKRs for peer discussion before the occasional recorded version of the grading was added to Workday, um, a different software. Uh, all of this discussion was a time-consuming distraction, which failed to incorporate the fact that a new CEO had changed the company's strategy strategy to a more resource-intensive building and manufacturing program, one that had little relationship to the decade-long sustainability goals previously stated. You go on to talk about how like the, the OKRs are things that kind of keep you really, really busy in your mm-hmm. like ev- like your day-to-day practice. And they kind of weigh on your mind as you establish your objectives and your key results and you monitor them and you hold yourself and your team to account. And and you know, they're all of this kind of thing it's kind of like it's amusing yourself to death but it's really like more working yourself to death through kpis right but um but then but all of this amounts to to what right like you you were quite uh you know you, you weren't very hopeful in the piece around like this actually amounting to any actual change because it's like at the end of the day the thing that comes up to threat if you don't um, meet your sustainability goals is maybe like at bonus time, you don't get as much as big of a bonus or you don't get any bonus, you know, but like ultimately, um, the, you know, the, the, there was no real sharp end to actually achieving the sustainability goals. It was just, it was something that maintained your attention um, on a day-to-day level, um, maybe impacted you at bonus time. But then like, if you didn't meet the goals, then maybe in the next um, quarterly review, the, the the objectives got put back on the dashboard or they got taken off the dashboard or whatever. Um, but all, all the same, uh, having such objectives and key results um, that you can report would still like have a positive effect on the company from a financial level because it would be like ESG positive um, just to say that like you have OKRs that are sustainability focused regardless of if you're actually like achieving them or not right so yeah like what 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 is that OKR dashboard kind of look like and how and how have these dashboards become um, this this real kind of uh sensual tool of governance. Yeah, well, you're reminding me too of um, how many other meetings we had because a lot of these systems were introduced during COVID as a way of creating rapport between remote employees. So let's have something we can all focus on on the screen while we're doing these Zoom calls. And so your list of OKRs um, if you ever got to them (laughs) were often the result of other kinds of very long-winded meetings where you're using brainstorming software to throw a whole bunch of ideas for OKRs on the virtual wall with virtual sticky notes and then sorting through those and voting for them with your uptick and your stickers and, again, distracting yourself from the fact that we're in a pandemic and that, yeah, using all of this technology is... Uh, using a lot of energy <laughs> that might be best served for other purposes. 
But the fact that we had to come up with all of these new norms for interacting remotely that would somehow simulate the collegiality of a shared office environment was one, I think, not insignificant part of why these sorts of um, virtual brainstorming sessions became so common and laborious. But I just could never get past the irony of spending weeks and weeks of weekly meetings trying to come to a view on what would be a good enough OKR to enter into a spreadsheet and the fact that the criteria for putting one into a spreadsheet had to be a certain percentage of something achieved by a certain date. And so that could be anything from how many people read a blog post that you write to how many employees do you sign up to the sustainability employee resource group or, you know, how many keynotes does the executive give or, yeah, how many proof of concept technologies can you ship? But, like, they're all kind of interchangeable things <laughs> and they all become, like, equally valuable or invaluable, but the amount of time that goes into debating the worth of them just seems to be, as you say, an infinite amount of busy work to have us not talk about wh why <laughs> these should be priorities um, and, and really whether the the company you're in or the people who are on your team are the people that could carry out something that would actually change any of this. And so I think I just got um, concerned that this was a disempowering move for companies to make um, by introducing a kind of surveillance and monitoring system that puts a lot of pressure on employees to get something right and takes away from them a lot of the expertise that they've accumulated over the years as, a, as an expert in something. And that's, that's the other thing I guess the OKR does on this annual review basis is it introduces a potential further corporate amnesia <laughs> to the way that institutions keep memories of what they've done um, and in that environmental um, case, I guess it's, it's even more concerning that all of these documents will remain internal and inaccessible to public scrutiny. Um, and if an OKR is not met for an environmental point of view, yeah, you're still going to lose <laughs> the habitat. You're still going to lose the water. You're still going to have... Um, somebody else's renewable energy supply going into your factory. And so I just, I worry that we're not even getting access to the information that we need to know what's going on with some of these companies and that the number of layers of abstraction that software adds to these um, management techniques. Um, it's not just time consuming, it's, it's um, keeping a lot more locked down in different forms of IP regimes that, people don't have access to. Yeah. You know, I think a lot about, you know, how there's this across, across multiple sectors, this like, uh, you know, assumption, belief that if there's a digital interface, adding things on top of it, even if they are cumbersome, even if they don't meld well together, you know, is a step forward, an innovative step, but also that at no point should they be peeled back or retooled or revisited, right? Especially thinking, through, you know, about your point about it, you know, kind of emerging as a way to recreate the, uh, you know, uh, collegiality of, 
office, trying to figure out some way of reestablishing that connective tissue, adding in, um, you know, other limitations that would prevent prevent even that from emerging. Uh, mixing in management techniques, mixing in weird institutional conflicts that and and politics that might emerge. I mean. Like, do you, do you ever get the sense, you know, both in, you know, your research and, and I guess also maybe in the course of the research as well, um, that um, there are internal concerns that, you know, maybe they are adding on too much shit, you know, <laughs> to put it simply, right, that, you know, there are too many uh, displays, there are too many, you know, shiny bells and whistles, um, that that the data that's being generated is far too removed and too abstracted as you were talking about that, um, you know, maybe they are moving the meter on some metric, but that metric in of itself is a byproduct of a long chain of abstraction and artifice that eventually at no, at some point has nothing to do with whatever it is that they're interested in, whether that's sustainability, whether that's reigning in cost, whether, you know, whatever application that you might have it for. I mean, is that a concern that you see pop up in at all? <laughs> you know, really? Yeah. I mean, it's something I've written about extensively, actually, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. prior to this focus on sustainability, that right. um, the introduction of digital tools Mm-hmm. Just as you could take this back even further to different forms of efficiency and and management techniques and corporations before the digital, um, it often involves a new form of expertise that employees need to take the burden to learn. Um, and in previous work I've done as an academic, I wrote a book on the introduction of the smartphone and social media on regular people's work lives and how the excite again the excitement of something like Facebook or Twitter arriving on the scene became you know quite a glamorous thing for new companies to be adopting and putting somebody on your social networking strategy became a whole new job category but more and more people had to start to come up with their own personal response to how this was seen as a new way of being a professional to have your presence on social media in addition to managing all of the email that you were starting to get on a smartphone because, like, there was a time before smartphones when you could leave emails on your computer and then there was a time before we had email as well and you could leave papers in your office, in theory. But nah, it's, I, I it's, don't believe it. <laughs> in <laughs> theory. Big, big if true. <laughs> so it's like I'm seeing this new version of software adherence to management practice as part of a longer narrative of how technologies that are seen as a new exciting possibility often become a new form of work for employees to master in their own time. And I saw this also when I did a history of productivity tools in the office and looked at how different um, startups and software companies, you know, were starting to offer tools to organize your to-do list, you know, the whole getting things done movement where inbox zero would be possible if you could just adopt this technique and download this app and and put your workload in the right order. And so I I feel like I was having a bit of deja vu with the OKR process in this way that if we could just make everything look really organized and elegant as if it was going to be done, 
then the work itself would be more manageable. But I do remember saying to my VP in one meeting, probably um, not a wise move, but I said, is there any a t- ever a time when we would actually say no to some of the work that we were being asked to put in this, you know, in this workload formula? Because it just seems to me like there, there was no way for the amount of work to be discussed as a result of using this software. It was just the way in which it would be arranged <laughs> to appear to be doable <laughs> that seemed to be the objective of these, um, of these different dashboard interfaces. So, yeah, the more, the more times that we were asked to adopt a new software package to represent the same information um, in a different way for some kind of better form, it just it did seem to me to be, again, putting more emphasis on the presentation of work as opposed to the doing of the work. And obviously I felt ultimately that the balance was out <laughs> in terms of what I was prepared to give up um, of how much work I actually wanted to get done. That links really well is something that we, we are constantly asking on, on, on TMK is, you know, is there ever a time where you would say no to a technology, right? And like, that's, that's a, for a lot of people, that's a really unthinkable thing to ask that you would say no to some technology um, rather than what seems to be the case uh, with, even when we're talking about in terms of like, you know, sustainability or, or social benefit. It's rather than saying no to a technology, it's always a, 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 the improv. No, you always say yes, but then you say, and we're going to make it more efficient or yes, and we're going to de-bias it. But the, the, it's never a no, uh, a no where you're right. We won't do that actually, or we won't make that technology or we won't, we won't foist it upon people. It's always this kind of like this yes, but we recognize that there are problems. And so we're going to solve those problems. And, and it's not always, you know, nuclear fusion is going to solve it. But I think as well, what you were describing with like the kind of productivity uh, contradiction there, where it's like the more productive you become, the more work you workload you have rather than what should be happening is like the more productive you are, the less work you have because you're more productive. You're getting the, uh, you're getting the amount of work needed to get done in a quicker or easier or, or less resource intensive way, which is great. You, you less work, um, but no, it's always piling up and it, it link. It's a perfect uh, analog to something you talk about in the piece in the energy context of what's called Jevons paradox, right? Which seems to, really kind of govern a lot of the, um, the, the green software, right? Green software to me uh, is, this, is this way that you say yes and to a technology where you say, yes, we're going to do the technology, but we're going to make it more efficient. Um, and so it's actually going to be like less energy intensive, less resource intensive, less waste generated because it's going to be more efficient. Um, that's what engineering does. It makes things more efficient. But then the Jevons paradox kicks in where it's, you know, um, it, it's, it's quite well established that an increase in the efficiency of resource use, um, rather than generating a decrease of resource consumption, which is the whole justification, quite the opposite, it generates an increase of resource consumption because it's like, well, now it's cheaper, easier, more convenient to use those resources. And so we're going to use more of them, right? And and so you end up with this paradox where you've made the software, you've made 
the machine. You've made the light bulbs, which is a really classic kind of example of this. Like you've made these things more and more efficient, um, but rather than it generating less resource usage, it generates more because people are like, "That's great. We can use more of it. We can we can spin up more servers. We can have bigger billboards with brighter lights. We can do you know whatever it might be. We can train more AI models. Um, we're going to do more and more and more." You have a great uh, kind of uh, section um, in the in the piece where you talk about green software. I'll just quote these couple sentences here, uh, where you say, "Ultimately, green software innovation keeps the discipline of engineering, the outlook of practitioners, and the homogeneity of the industry largely unrenovated. Responsibility for reducing energy is in the hands of the coder, who, if motivated by climate concerns, takes the initiative to build the most efficient workload while designing." products and services that require and sustain the ongoing and in many cases increasing use of resources. So could you talk a little bit about um, about this paradox, about the kind of actual practices and outcomes of green software, right? This thing that is meant to uh, save us from these kind of energy demands, these consequences of resource usage, um, and has always been for for as long as I know the thing that people have pointed to as the solution for the well-established uh, environmental uh, impacts of the IT sector. It's always well. We're just going to make it greener. Look, we've got the Green Software Foundation. We've got people who are doing this open source style in their free time. You know, we're going to green our way out of these problems. I, I agree that um, it is the common refrain, and I do really appreciate all the work that the Green Software Foundation has done just to put this on the agenda. Um, it's it's been incredibly successful in many ways um, to actually get large corporations to think about this at all instead of going down the path of having incredibly energy-intensive use cases and applications as the primary objective of engineering. So anything that is talking about uh, a more minimal footprint for IT and making that desirable, I'm in favor of. So I want to start by saying that. <laughs> but I think the thing that I really worry about is that, you know, working with software developers more recently, um, the thing that they have the opportunity to do by saying that they're going to design green software is to remove um, the responsibility of informing end users of what their energy footprint is. So one example that inspired me to write that section was hearing an event about green software um, where people were talking about the future that they, they wanted as software developers. And it was to create, you know, again, a dashboard interface where they would be able to see, you know, in real time, the availability of renewable energy and then make the decision and allow the code to then make the decision about where to run that workload so that the user never has to actually think about their impact. And as soon as I heard that kind of thinking, it made me feel very pessimistic that there was ever going to be a time when 
we would want people to know, like normal everyday users <laughs> who are not engineers, that they have a role to play, that they could be doing differently um, the kinds of computing that they've taken for granted through all of those energy efficiency improvements. And I think that it's a kind of arrogance and an elitism to say on behalf of users, this is the way that we are going to make things efficient. The, the reason I think it's arrogant is because I think it's based on a worldview that a lot of the people I've seen in the industry take, which is, which is one that energy is infinite, that there's an uninterrupted supply. And it's just not the case in so much of the world. <laughs> and it will be less so the case even in places where energy has been consistent and has been reliable for the last few decades. Um, that is a historical anomaly. <laughs> and so I don't, I don't think that you can have engineers without a sense of history, without a sense of geography, without a sense of the science that's going into the different experiences of everyday life in different parts of the world, making those decisions for everybody in the world. And that's really what happens when you have tech concentrated in such small hands is that you have an elite kind of engineering making those decisions on behalf of cultures and countries and end users who will never have access to the same sorts of resources that, that those tech workers have. Um, so that's, that's why I'm concerned that the, as, as much as green software is doing everything it can to move large corporations and particularly the cloud companies um, that I do tend to focus on in that article, they're moving things in the right direction for what will inevitably be required for workload orchestration, for moving workloads around so that we are making use of renewable energy. But at whose expense? Like that renewable energy <laughs> could be going to other people and it certainly does not need to be going as much as it is right now on different versions of AI optimization that very few people are actually asking for. <laughs> and that probably takes me to another topic we haven't gotten into, which is just the, the role of social science and human-facing expertise um, human factors engineering in being a true partner to the way that so any kind of software or hardware is being designed right now. I was really lucky to work alongside silicon architects and platform architects for many years and, and see what difference it can make when you share research about people that are not like the people in the room to get people to question the biases going into the technologies they're designing um, and to see the implications for people who will be using those technologies in places that are very different to their everyday experience. And so I just really worry at the moment when we see a lot of, um, you know, layoff activity in the tech sector that we, we may have a, a new concern that's going under the radar where some of those conversations are not going to be happening as much anymore. And that's basically why I felt like I needed to write that article because um, I really want to invite more and more people to get involved in this discussion because it seems to me really important. Yeah. I mean, let, let's go off on that a little bit more though, because like, like I think we have you know, and I think your piece with Yolandi has really, in a succinct 
uh, and sharp way kind of cut to the to the quick of a lot of the the problems with how you know the, the sustainability metrics have been dashboardified and you know governed by these kind of these regime these managerial regimes how um, you know ESG accounting is at once so idiosyncratic but also so abstracted as well you had some really great examples in the in the piece around how like um you know the the intel is seen as water positive in the esg rankings because of like initiatives that they have in small local places around the world despite the fact that they are like building uh, you know new massive uh, water intensive facilities in the uh, American Southwest right or like you know and and this is also similar with like you know big data servers being built in like Mesa Arizona and things like that where it's like it's it's really abstracted because it, it's abstracting away from these actual like concentrated clustered, um, in, in a lot of ways, irreversible local consequences such that some places become these like sacrifice zones. But in a global sense, the, the account, the, the accounting all works out where actually we're, we're, we're in the positive. We're not in the negative. Um, and so, uh, like the piece really hits on a lot of this, the paradox that govern it with like, you know, uh, that govern efficiency and stuff like that. So, but let's let's. I know that like your work and um, Yolandi's work, who's your co-author, are also really um, kind of positive oriented as well. And and you've just kind of given us a nice platform to jump further off of around what it was. What does it look like to bring that kind of social science expertise into the way uh, these sectors operate? I you know, you'll, I know Yolandi. Um, has been working on a big project uh, trying to bring social science expertise and ethnography into energy forecasting for um, uh, uh, energy utilities, uh, you know, producers and distributors of, of energy, thinking about what, what, is it, what are people's like actual everyday usage and relationship to energy look like um, in, a, in a real kind of human sense, not just in these like big abstracted kind of numbers on a, on a dashboard board, right? And how, did, how should that change the kind of scenarios that we plan for, that we forecast, that we build infrastructure around? Could you bring us further into like, what, what is the kind of like positive vision or positive change look like here such that we don't end up with, um, you know, the as you quote from uh, another scholar, Mars, what calls the the change of no change, right? Which is what so much of the uh, the kind of the dashboards as this form of like enrolling people into public engagement of building like good liberal participation and small actions, as you put it, um, but ultimately resulting in that kind of sustainability we talked about before, which is more sustainability in terms of maintaining a status quo. So what, rather than a change of no change, what is a what does a change of real change uh, actually look like here? So a couple of examples, I guess. I'm getting a lot of hope right now from other people like me. I sort of saw my departure a year ago as a, a version of climate quitting. You know, it's like I would rather spend the next six months 
pulling ivy out of my backyard as a more practical way of dealing with <laughs> sustainability and um, land care than sitting in front of another PowerPoint slide with OKRs being finessed. Um, and other people like me are, um, are doing something similar in that they're taking the expertise that they've learned and the networks they've built from inside these companies and starting their own businesses. Um, they're meeting at some of the, you know, co corporate environment um, events in order to ch share notes and help each other into new roles and new consulting gigs. And I think not compromising on the, the work that needs to be done, but helping each other create a new kind of um, consulting business that, yeah, it, it won't waste more time <laughs> in the genres of corporate America that are too outdated now to actually get the work underway. Um, I think that's something we can expect to see more of as um, as, as more young people concerned about this topic are entering the workforce. I think the other thing that um, gives me hope is um, going back to our social media discussion, um, the power of different forms of media influence. Now that um, there are different outlets for people to share knowledge and to provide exposés and um, you know, I, I also really believe in the value of journalism and it seems to be no accident that there are a lot of um, layoffs in journalism right now, just as there are a lot of layoffs in social science and um, human factors engineering. <laughs> but I think there are um, different kinds of partnerships and allies that can be built through these different knowledge industries that will create a kind of accountability that we need that we're not going to get through traditional regulation, which can be quite slow. The other thing I'm really hopeful about is activism and nonprofits more broadly and how working with them in the local settings where different companies are prominent employers can be a very impactful alliance to build. And so I see a lot of that work here in Portland where activism around climate and energy justice, I think, can learn from some of the climate quitters that are coming out of the big companies to understand the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities and some of the networks of influence that have maintained corporate power for a long time. Um, so some of the research I'm doing in future will be looking at that in different regions and not just in the US. I think the other area to watch is uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia where a lot of um, the regulations that have come in in Europe and the US are less prominent. And so how do you, how do you learn from that history and leverage the presence of some of those companies in those regions to push for better environmental outcomes for those locations too. So that, that's probably where I'm going to be spending some more time in future. And that's, that's one thing I'm really happy to have learned working in a large corporation is the positive influence you can have when uh, a company that does have different values to a host culture can bring about change. I did a lot of work on um, LGBT rights at Intel, for example, and, and it was something that was really 
pleasing and inspiring to me to see how having an American company in a different national location can start to create change on different political issues um, that otherwise would not have had that level of visibility and, and sanction. So that's where I do think that when there are existing corporations with a footprint um, that can be influenced towards better goals, then we should do everything we can to, if not stay in them forever, then definitely have um, paths in and lots of strong friendships and, and colleagues who last no matter where you happen to be working over your career, but um, who can be sharing a mission with you. That's a nice fifth column. You know, I, I like that. I like that idea. I think also maybe my last, my, my question would be, kind of building off this positive uh, you know that you were talking about I mean one thing I it always feels like is some of these global conferences are places where corporations or elements of corporations or you know uh, groups or industry groups um, mobilize and sometimes to preempt or sometimes to co-opt you know, burgeoning things or to undermine them or to spin, spin developments one way or another. I mean, do you, do you, do you think that, or do you hope that, you know, these sorts of, you know, this, this sort of quitting, this sort of quiet quitting or, cli- or quiet climate uh, quitting can also help with what I think is a real problem where, you know, you get to these global conferences and they're able to connect or network with world leaders, do back kind of have back channels into conversations and watered down conversations, uh, especially around climate or to, you know, have uh, discussions, discourse, policy dominated by uh, blowhards or, um, you know, fights that, that emerge. Um, I've been thinking about, for example, Davos and Doha and, you know, climate accords, but then also, you know, the climate accords happening and the ways in which the climate accords were talked about, um, as well as like, you know, a, a contingent of people coming out of it feeling misery or despair, but also um, feeling like there was a step forward. And then also at, at Davos, you know, always feeling each year like I'm watching people uh, focus group test. Uh, you know, ideas, right? Like, was was it three Davoses ago where Benioff was pitching stakeholder capitalism? Um, you know, so I think, I, I th- yeah, that's what my concern is. What do you think about, you know, this sort of like constant re-entrenchment or renegotiation that happens at these larger levels, both as a part of spectacle, but also in, the, in real networking that they're able to achieve at these events? Like, how do we get you know, uh, individuals in these groups in a position to undermine that or push back against that. The point you make is so valid and I'm currently doing this weird exercise of reading um, manifestos either five or ten years after they've been written. Mm. So I just finished reading um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline mm. by Andreas Malm, fantastic book. Also I'm reading that One of our favourites. Yeah, yeah. I'm reading the Naomi Klein book before the current Naomi Klein book. (laughs) One of those people that has to do something in order. But I'm noticing like this this kind of reassuring uh, response I've had in both cases is that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what year the book is written because it's the same lament 
that whatever COP we're up to or whatever Davos meeting it is, um, the disappointment is still the same, that the message isn't being heard and the commitments aren't really being actioned. And I, I see it as reassuring because part of what you take on when you become a sustainability or environmental activist is you, you take on that um, Groundhog Day <laughs> dimension to it. It's just part of what it is to be in this world. Um, but I think what you're also asking is, are the right people allowed to even participate? That's also what was motivating me to start writing about engineering as actually the locus of power at the moment because no matter what the spin doctors tell people to say on those stages where the very important world leaders are, we all know that that is PR, that that is market-tested language and that it is reinforcing an idea of what is acceptable today. But what I'm more concerned about is shedding light on where there are decisions being made right now that aren't even being classified as relevant for sustainability impacts. And, yeah, the, the way in which your video is being encoded and decoded or the way in which your local energy is being affected by a large corporation that happens to have a data centre nearby that you don't even know about, they're, they're the sorts of concrete things that I think a citizenship <laughs> needs today um, in order for us to legitimately know what to do because we've known in theory what we should do for decades. It's to stop using fossil fuels. <laughs> uh, and so if you're not being given extra knowledge of all of the ways that you're implicated in using fossil fuels, you know, from catching a plane to watching YouTube, then I think that's a, a real disservice to what it means to be a citizen or a consumer. Um, and that's really the work I want to do is, is make that a kind of literacy that is required of these companies and of these leaders. So it's not an elite discourse of goals, targets, dashboards and acronyms from certifications in sustainability, but it's should I turn my computer off at night? Um, should I drive versus bike? <laughs> should I plant this tree or should I let, let an invasive species take over? <laughs> um, what are the concrete decisions that we have some power over? And don't fall for the glamour of the world stage PR machine because um, everybody wants to follow their own kind of celebrity. And I think for some people, <laughs> Davos and Cop are just another version of like, you know, the Oscars or the Emmys or the Grammys or whatever. It's like who gets to be there that night for that event? And I'd rather, I'd rather see people feeling like they have more control over their lives and their community. Um, and that's the kind of sustainability I'm working on. we started off talking about how um you know these these 
kind of AI models and these big data servers, like no one's asking for it, right? No one's wanting it. No one's clamoring for it. It's being foisted upon people. And I think as well, so much of this comes down to not just the knowledge of like knowing about the the consequences and their, their causes, um, but also then having the ability to um, force new decisions, right? Because it's like everybody could decide to quit flying, um, you know, at, at the consumer level um, if they wanted to. But then what happens? But then what's stopping, you know, the IT sector from being like, oh, great, more energy for us to to use um, to, you know, all, all those emissions being saved from people deciding to turn their computers off at night. Um, that's just more energy for us to use to build bigger and better data servers in Phoenix, Arizona, or something like that. But even if we did that, even if we did stop flying tomorrow, uh, you know, this amazing new Oxfam Guardian study is showing like the, the carbon elite, like the 1% that's doing all of the private jet travel <laughs> are still going to be doing their private jet travel. And what I'm trying to do in this work on computing ec ecological impacts too, is just to say it, there's no shame in saying there's a carbon elite in the computing business too. Um, and so what worries me is like you not, you're normalizing a form of energy consumption in saying that AI is the future or chat GPT is harmless. Um, it's another way of creating an appetite for something that all of the evidence suggests we should um, probably say not really appropriate and certainly not something that's um, in keeping with the, the limits of the resources we have. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that really, you know, breaking outside of the, the constraints for what kind of options we actually have. And I think for, forcing those decisions on other people is so is really is really crucial here that carbon elite um, that that engineering elite but I, I I think real really great stuff Mel thank you so much for for coming on such a good discussion I mean just an, a more important topic every single day truly um, as we get more of these reports too of like you know the forecasted energy usage of AI that nobody wants and then the counter argument to it is uh, uh, a magical genie is going to deliver fusion upon us and then we'll never have to worry about it again um, <laughs> I, I, I just I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical call me a cynic but I'm a little skeptical that those solutions are going to come uh, before all of us are underwater uh, in a boiling You don't think ocean. we're going to live in the culture universe, Jathan? You don't think we're going to have... <laughs> you don't think me and you are going to be uh, in consider plebeius in like <laughs> 100 well, just, years? Just, that's, why they, that's why I'm the cynic. Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you again, Mel, for coming on. Um, we will, of course, have a link to your new article with Yolandi in the episode. Is there anything else that you would like to direct people's attention to before we, before we leave off? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a, a bunch of videos I did this year with, with people talking about the electronics ecologies that we've been circling around today. So as part of this Center for Automated Decision-Making in Society at RMIT that I'm affiliated with, I did a, a whole bunch of um, events where we talked about 
energy use. We talked about waste and circular design. We talked about right to repair for electronics. So there's heaps of really cool videos there that I'd, I'd urge people to take a look at if they're interested in topics to do with sustainability and tech. Yeah, I will I will definitely throw a link to those videos in the episode description too. You, you went on a... a, a uh, a real tour of Australia hosting <laughs> these panels in, in cities um, up and down the uh, the Easter, the East Coast. And so... And in Singapore. It was super fun. And in Singapore. So, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I'll definitely throw a link there um, for, for that, uh, for people to check out. So, thank you again, Mel. Uh, and people can also find us at... Uh, patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week um, subscribe there and until next time later adios Yo, 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 yo,